Hello, Film Files. You're listening to 90.7 WAZU. It's 9 o'clock p.m., and uh, it's good enough time to do our show. We're all here. Figured we might as well. I'm Jimmy Malone. I'm Stuart Randolph. I'm Ben Snowden. And I'm Anna Holguin. Yep, this is Movie Show Theater. In a world where movies are everywhere, these heroes will make sense of some of the world's strongest films. Jimmy, Ben, and Stuart. This is Movie Show Theater. So real quick here, we have uh, coming up is our midnight matinee. It's going to be at the Apollo Theater in Peoria on June 13th. Uh, we're doing Night of the Living Dead first at 6.20, and then at 8.20 we're doing Westworld. And uh, you can get tickets at Blue Bar in Peoria at 619 Main Street. One of our one of our favorite places to go. They're real connected with the arts community. And then, of course, every third Friday of the month, starting at 9, Blue has an event called Adele Dazim, which is hosted by Anna Holguin. And they celebrate everything musical theater, and it's a good time. Not to be confused with Anna Holguin. Yeah, yeah. Did I, did I pronounce that right? Uh, actually, it's Autumn Holden. Was that one you actually got? Yeah. Wow, that's wonderful. Yeah, you you should have, like, if you had pronounced, mispronounced it on purpose, that would have been perfect with the Adele Dazim thing. Who's going to just gone with it? Autumn, Autumn Hol- Holguin. Yeah. However, the people okay. spit that yeah. out. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's a fun night. I really like to see the people that stumble in and don't know what's going on. And then by the end of the night, they're weeping and singing A Whole New World. And they've transformed into a whole we new like person. We like to consider it a group sing along. Yes. That's exactly what it is. It's like karaoke without the microphones. Yeah. So that's Blue. Uh, You can get more information at the uh, Movie Show Theater Facebook page, um, or you can call 214-0756 for more details. I can't really tell you prices, but it's reasonable. And you can get them at the door, of course. So that's on June 13th. And that's all. Tonight was my movie choice. I chose American Beauty from 1999, directed by Sam Mendes, starring Kevin Spacey, Annette Benning, Mina Savari, Dora Birch, onslaught of uh, just wonderfully talented actors. So what did you think, Ben? I liked it. Did you like it? Mm-hmm. Think it was kind of relevant? Yeah. I think it was for as much praise as it got, and sometimes it was a little bit unbalanced. Like, I knew what they were saying but like with they'd be going from dark humor and then the end is you know this uh profound message about life it's like eh, i still like it mm-hmm. but to me it's a little uneven yeah i know what you mean i i think it's interesting how they were able to you know the the content is is obviously pretty dark and uh all these characters nobody's really satisfied with the image you know, everybody kind of puts up this front to the rest of the world, and they still manage to keep this movie moving along, and it's kind of lighthearted. I mean, at the end, it's 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 a good message. It's I cry every time I watch this movie. It's I wouldn't say that it's dark so much as it's just kind of profound. It's one of those movies that sticks with you, and it makes you think. 
And the, the subject matter, I mean, there's no surprise he dies at the end. He tells you at the beginning he's going to die. Which I had another problem with that. Yep. That he tells you he's going to die? Yeah. No. Well, that just part. voiceovers in general. And, well, just the part that he says that because I think it took away a lot of the power of that happening. I think it prepares they you for the ending. I, I mean, don't think if he needed the, any voiceover except mm-hmm. maybe for the ending if, he, if it's really him talking. I think if he doesn't preface by saying and within when he says within a year i'll be dead it's kind of nudging he's gonna die at the end of the movie so when he dies don't don't consider it a a bad ending or a sad ending i mean yeah it's sad that he dies but you're kind of being prepared for this throughout the whole movie even when they play the seeker and the soundtrack was just phenomenal the score and the soundtrack oh yeah the soundtrack was great for the film but i i think that uh maybe i have to disagree just a little bit about the darkness it is dark it is just too real their family's pretty it, much shattered too real almost it's, pretty much every family it's everybody shattered. everybody feels the way they feel at some point in time and and it's not necessarily it's not necessarily a mirror on real life uh but i think it's what what we all have in us at some point in time just with the volume turned up just a little bit and and the grim reality of his waking up in the morning and describing, not to mention what he does right there, right in the morning, you know, <laughs> hey, all right, yep. The high in point his, of his day. The high point of his day, I mean. In his little jail cell in the shower. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. I mean, it, it, it's just, it seems to me is that there's got to be something else in this guy's life that he he's willing to live for. And granted, he finds something like that in this in this creepy attraction to his daughter's friend, but that's just what it is. It's a creepy attraction. Nobody yeah. in their right mind is going to even follow through on that. And and I don't find him to be a, a mentally unbalanced character. He he's not. He's just sad. He's not crazy. And yet, this obsession this obsession that somewhat helps him into this transformation is a little overblown and 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 i know that maybe it maybe it hits too close to home for me in a lot of ways because i'm his age you know at least in this movie you know and and uh yeah i see a lot of crazy weird things and i see a lot of really attractive people and but again i can't even begin to fathom what was going through his mind at that point and why he would have that kind of obsession or sitting at, or sitting at a dining room table with three people three people sitting there nothing to say to each other except mm-hmm. for nitpicky horrible things and and at that point why bother sitting at the table mm-hmm. well, I mean what is it to put on the show of the great American dream or the exactly great American family mm-hmm. but nobody plays that show if there's nobody watching nobody plays that show well I just I just found like that whole table thing to be almost uh, a holdover of you know live action theater because when I read about the movie I had already watched the movie and it made sense that at first um, it was going to be a play it's like oh so the table is like a central set piece it's where mm-hmm. they always return um, but in reality, yeah, if it, if it were more realistic, which I don't think it's necessarily trying to be, they'd probably be all in separate rooms, one of them watching TV, one of, like, the uh, the wife, Carolyn, would be in her office. Um, 
so they'd probably be in separate places. But I think they had to have their personalities mingle a little bit for a scene like him throwing the plate against the wall to be more effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the whole movie, the, the the blocking is very theatrical, and especially at the dinner scene. I mean, that's almost, you know, it, it looks like they're on a stage. And um, I think the catalyst that Angela serves, and he mentions this several times, that... You know, somebody has the power to surprise themselves. And I think he was surprised at the emotion and what was happening in his mind when he first saw her when they're at the gym. And, yeah, he was infatuated and he had this, you know, sexual fantasy about her. But I think he was surprised by how youthful he felt for the first time in such a long time. And, you know, that was kind of the, you know, catalyst that got the ball rolling. To certain events, you know, there was the restaurant where he met Ricky Fitz. And, you know, he tells Ricky, I think you just became my personal hero. Well, that was hilarious, that whole scene. Yeah. Getting high out behind the, you know, Ricky just, he just flat out quit his job. You know, just, I don't know, then don't pay me. I don't care, Mm -hmm. you know, weirdo (laughs) or whatever it was he said that's inappropriate for radio. But, you know, and again, that that kid, he was probably the most stable of all of the characters. Oh, yeah. And yet... He was also probably the most messed up of all of the characters because he lived a lie. His entire life was a lie. Well, they all, kind like of his, all lived a lie. Just like his father's entire life was a lie. Ugh. I mean, a creepy, horrible, just sexually repressed lie. Right. And and I'm sorry, uh, it, it he he was by far. He 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 was a survivor. He knew how to live within the environment in which his father put him in, and and he was good at it. He was really good at it, and the fact that he was able to deal right under his father's nose without mm-hmm. almost no suspicion whatsoever, right? In, of course, not until right up until the very end. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. But then his father gets completely wrong idea, mm-hmm. right? Which. Denial, he's, never underestimate the power of denial. Absolutely. But then he's Lester also, I think, a little jealous then because he thinks yeah. his son's actually living out something that he himself wanted all this time. But mm-hmm. because of whether it was because of his upbringing or because of his, of, of his military background or because of whatever it was, he can't let himself be who he is. Yeah. And, and the neighbors who just kind of are there and throw it all out there, the two, Jim the, the gay and couple. Jim. Yeah, they're yeah. the happiest people in the they're whole the, movie. They're the most stable people. Yeah, they're yeah. actually yeah. the only movie. ones in the whole movie where it's just like, there doesn't really seem, there's there's no impression you get that there's something terribly wrong with Jim and Dennis. It's just like, oh, they're outside talking about, you know, uh, the lawn. Yeah. You know, I'm like, oh, right. here's a dog. And they're talking about the dog and then they're jogging. It's just like, they're the only characters, it seems like, who don't have horrible flaws. I'm yeah. really glad that they interjected a gay couple in this kind of suburban nightmare that you see in these two homes, the the Fitz family and the Burnham family. And then there's Jim and Jim, who seem like totally well-adjusted people. But to the outside, so do the Burnhams and so do the Fitzes. So it's, you know, the fact that they, they threw in a gay couple to kind of, you know, to, to make it a little bit more realistic, I think, you know, then this movie was in the late 90s, early 2000s, so it was a little bit ahead of its time it, in that very regard. Very much so ahead of its time in that regard. But because, I'm really glad yeah. that they did, because it, it kind of makes you think, well, you know, these are your neighbors, and this is the life that you live, and a lot of the country lives. So, you know, and in a lot of ways, this movie examines whether or not 
you know, the facade that we put on and so on. And we were talking about that a little bit. And I like the character of Ricky so much because even though he is the one who is living the most obvious lie, he's also the one who's the most aware of it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, he's a secret drug dealer who takes catering jobs to get his dad off of his back. (laughs) But he also is the only one who's ever in this whole film initially who has a level of of self-awareness and existentialism. So he's the only one, you know, he opens up. Jane's eyes, he shows her the video of the bag, which is really a pivotal point in the movie where he's, you know, it's like, this is what, this is the other part of the world that I see and nobody Mm -hmm. else sees yet. And that's kind of Lester's journey is finding that point. It's his own honesty, though. It's the honesty. He, He just doesn't lie. And yet his whole life is a lie. But kind he's, of ironic. It, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's overlaid on itself here. I mean, he never once lies to Jane at all. Never once lies to to uh, Kevin Spacey character. I can never remember names. Lester. Lester. Lester, thank you. He never once lies to Lester. He is flat out honest from the very get-go. And yet, again, his entire life is a complete lie. Yeah, I totally agree that he has probably the most twisted um, – background and well, he's, he's one of not. the only characters who doesn't go through a transformation uh-uh. he because did. he is who he is he, right well, yeah. exactly well, he's, he's honest to everyone except his father right now, he hates his father but he lies to him constantly but then his father's also lying to himself well so. and he kind of defends him too when he says he's a good man you know when they're on the bed and they're talking uh angela and ricky she's like you better believe i'd hate my dad if he did that to me she says he says he's a good man yeah and he's it's just uh, understanding and, and forgiveness. That, I mean, what makes me wonder if he doesn't suspect just a little bit about what's going on with his dad? I'm sh- well, yeah, I, think I don't he, know. I, I'm sure he knows because so there's the scene with Jim and Jim and then they're driving um, Colonel Fitz and Ricky to school. And um, that's when Colonel Fitz goes on his homophobic rant. And Ricky says, oh, yeah, he looks right at his, at his dad, and he's not very convincing. He just looks right at him and says, yeah, dad, I hate – he doesn't use the word gay people. He uses a yeah. bad word for that. Uh, I hate them too and just looks at his dad. And I think he knows with his he's, mom, Barbara, who's just so horribly okay, what lonely. is going on with mom? Yeah. She just, Alice and Janie's performance is oh incredible. Oh, she's, she's always the, the bubbly, bouncy. Right, but in this, she's, she's, she's just a, she's a husk of Yeah, she's of truly a, a shell. And it's she it's it's such an interesting portrayal, too, because, it, I mean, I wish they would have gotten a little bit more into her. I mean, you get a good idea of who she is, so they don't – it's not necessary. But, you know, when Ricky brings Thor Birch home from, yeah, for the first James. time – and he taps her on the shoulder, and she doesn't respond. She's just—I mean, not only is she a shell, but she's literally not there. It's like she's suffering from PTSD or something. Well, like being she's married having to her... Colonel Frank Fitz might make well, you yeah, like that. Well, yeah, okay, that might be the case, but do we never get any indication that he beats her or treats her sure. poorly, or or he just—I I other think than it... he just insists on a tight ship in his house, you know? It seems like, you know, from that scene where the, the Fitz family is sitting down and watching, like, an old war movie, it looks, you know, it's in black and white, that she's, you kind of get the impression that she's just been, like, truly and totally, utterly ignored for probably, you know, 18 years since, mm-hmm. you know, Ricky was born. Well, she wasn't sitting on the couch. She was cowering yeah. on the mm-hmm. couch. Yeah. Her whole body posture was somebody who is just whipped 
But again, we don't know what has happened in the past, but we don't get any indication other through than through his physical behavior with his son that he's ever raised his hand to her. But that's the way she's acting. She's acting like a beat dog who's, you know, basically afraid of her own shadow. Um, yeah. When so, Ricky leaves, that scene with her oh just God, breaks my yeah. heart because it – I think it says so much. Alice and Janney's got maybe five minutes of screen time yeah. as the wife, and she's got maybe ten lines of dialogue. But when Ricky leaves and he, he tells her, I wish things would have worked out differently for you, and she says, wear a raincoat, and he, she kisses him goodbye, it's like, oh, gosh. I know. Oh, man. Like, you know, here she, she is just a shell of a woman, and I don't, I don't really think you need an explanation. I kind of feel like... Colonel Frank Fitz's character is just kind of explanation enough. Mm-hmm. You can kind of fill in the, the, you can the, fill yeah. in the, the blanks that, you know, along yeah. maybe the 20 years or so that they've been married, you can kind of assume that she hasn't been very happy and she probably didn't have a whole lot of say in her own life. Yeah. So it seems like every time, and, and I've watched this movie more times than I care to admit, but there's all sorts of ideas and themes and motifs and, and, and what have you, but what always stands out in my mind is this whole idea of imprisonment and redemption. And the most obvious example is, you know, Kevin Spacey, who me and Anna love to point out the different scenes where they show Lester and he's got a reflection of bars on his face, like when he's at his desk, blah, blah, you know, whatever. But, you know, Frank Fitz is imprisoned by his, you know, his own repressed sexuality. And Alice and Janie is imprisoned because she's in this life that she's obviously not happy in. There's a lot of scenes through windows, too. And the idea, you know, the whole tagline of the movie was look closer. And a lot of communication happens in this movie that just through windows. And it's a lot of it was is with Ricky and Jane and, you know, his filming. And there's the idea that we're looking at something on the other side of a wall is something that stays consistent with this movie's sort of thematic nature of. You know, there's there's a wall up, like a a wall, literal and figurative. And then with the windows, you see people behind bars. And, you know, there's the scene where Jane undresses for for Ricky. Ricky, And it's such a cool shot because they're filming Ricky, filming Jane. And then behind Ricky on his big TV screen is is Jane Jane. undressing. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's so it's a first of all, it's a complicated shot. So good job to the cinematographers there. But it's also this like it's it's this like really deep perspective into what you're seeing and it makes you and then this the soundtrack is just this like haunting Thomas Newman like that kind of soundtrack that just makes you you know kind of makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up a little bit but the the fact that they do that it would be a lot less involved and it would be I feel a lot less honest if it was just him filming her in a room, but this was her undressing for him for the first time. They're still behind the walls. They still have, they still haven't told each other everything yet. And then a, a few scenes later, they're laying in bed together. And then he's filming her in person. But it's, you know, they they use that all throughout the movie. These walls, these bars, these windows. I, I have a very hard time believing that Thora Birch was only five years older than her performance. At clear and present danger at the time mm-hmm. she did this film. Well, she was 17 for that nude scene, so they had somebody from the MPAA that was on set, and her parents had to be on set and I sign off on I could all... not believe the change between ju- just that five years. Now, that, I mean, Thor Birch is a very pretty young lady, don't get me wrong, but I never thought she was beautiful. And I'm not saying that that was the scene that did it for me. As a matter of fact, the scene that did it for me was when. Ricky approaches Jane 
in the schoolyard when he was wearing that goofy beanie. Mm-hmm. And she's standing there and just kind of, what are you doing, creep? You know, and her friend's getting all attitude on him and whatnot. She looked at him in a way at that point, And I actually stopped the film and, and looked at my wife and I said, you know, she's cute, but not really pretty until right there. I think right it's interesting, there. too, and because... I completely saw it for the first time. I got it for the first time, how she is so much prettier than her blonde friend or, you know, perfect little friend or whatever that yeah. dad's got. Nina Savari is she... all right, but she also has a massive forehead, which is well-known. She is much older than her character. Nina Savari in real life... Now, don't quote me. This isn't going to be exact, but she's in her, like, mid-20s when they filmed American Beauty. And she she looks like she's... A very mature 17-year-old oh, yeah. who's oh, got yeah. a lot of attitude. But I couldn't believe, like, that movie and American Pie were filmed within the same couple of years. And she looks, they make her look so young. And she's just, oh, yeah. she's just a little thing. She's like, she looks like she's about five feet tall in real life. but mm-hmm. She probably is. She, yeah, she's tiny. But she, she looks young. Well, that was another interesting dynamic, too. Uh, the supposed friendship between Jane and Angela that really wasn't much fun but that's kind of what happens I mean even with guys that age everything is just a front it's a a lot of times it's just a matter of convenience you know and they use the juxtaposition of um, Jane's feelings about her body and herself you know you you get the sense that she's really low on herself because one of the first scenes is her looking up information about a breast augmentation Um, which she doesn't need no yeah that Clearly. Hello. <laughs> but teenage girls will convince themselves that they need a lot of things that they don't need. Well, yeah, know? be that as it may. So that's you kind of get that tension throughout the whole movie because it, it seems like at the end of the film you learn that Angela's been lying this whole time about her sexual life. And then yet she was bragging this whole time and she says, oh, yeah, I can tell that when I walk into a room all these guys just want to have sex with me. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it seems like she too was lying the whole time just like so many other characters were. Mm-hmm. No, putting up, putting no up that front. I mean, every character's got that front that they, you know, want the world to see them as. Right. Angela was a pathological liar, though, man. Everything that came out of her mouth. And she was, and maybe it's because she's young and, and it's it's kind of a good example of the lies that you tell that you're when you're older versus the lies that you tell when you're 17. You know, Lester's lying. Everybody in in their middle age in this movie is lying about something. And it's much more serious and it's much more complicated. And then Angela, like everything that comes out of her mouth up until the very end of the movie is just a lie. She's just and she's just making stuff up the whole time and it's just to make herself look cool. Wednesday nights, red lobster. Yeah. And then her experience <laughs> on the modeling set. Yeah, that's how it really is. And then the other girl's Whatever. like, stop you're acting seven... like you're Christy Turlington. You're yeah. only in 17 once and you a... looked fat. Which is an <laughs> awesome like, reference. Yeah, and she her it's I think her lies the example of her lies of being this like because she is beautiful, but she also, you know, she's faking this confidence. Her lies seem so much more trivial than the lies that all of the adult characters are telling in this in this story. At least, at the very least, though, when it comes to a, adult characters, Lester's the one who's trying the hardest to get out of that system of deception, deception of himself and others. He's just like, you know, he shows up to his job that he hates, and he's like, you know what, this new manager who's taken over, I'm going to tell him that I hate this job. And I'm going to say, hey, this is exactly what you're doing. You're going to try to sweep us out of here. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I'd, hey, honey, I I bought this this Firebird, you know, I'd because l- I'm, I'd, I'd got money from, you know, uh, threatening my former employer. I yeah. Did he get like 60 grand? 
Yeah, if so, only that worked in real life. That would just yeah. be beautiful. So they should be like, no, no, you're if leaving. If you know where the skeletons are, just play it for all it's worth. Why not? And I blackmailed my boss for almost $60,000. Yeah. yeah. They passed the asparagus. Please pass the asparagus. It seems like we haven't talked about Carolyn a whole lot. Oh, we haven't. We'll I get there. Gosh. We'll get there. Yeah, so I, I love Kevin Spacey's performance, and, and I love so many of the lines that he delivers. And the movie obviously spends the majority of time with Kevin Spacey. But in the past when I had watched this, the part that always drove me crazy because he does all these, you know, good things for himself when he starts exercising and he starts kind of being real with people. Um and then the day that he dies, after he finishes running, and um, he kind of lashes out at Jane, and I thought, well, that doesn't really fit with your character and this whole transformation. And then I realized the last within the last couple of years that they're not trying to convince you that this is a good moral protagonist and that he's a good person. They're just trying to show you, look at this transformation that you know he's he's gone through, but. Yeah, he's he's got flaws. He's not I mean he's not a his standards of living are not very high, I, I guess. I just find it very ironic that he starts exercising and smoking weed again all at the same time. Now, I know people who do that, but it just seems to me you're just, you know, balancing things rather than getting fit or going the opposite direction. Yeah. I mean, what are you trying it, to accomplish at it, that it, point? It, Most of it is lifting, though, so, you know, the lungs aren't as involved. Right. It seems like a decision you would make when you were 18. He kind of reverts back to oh, this, totally, you know, youthfulness. Muscle cars. Yeah, yeah well, I'm going to go in the garage weights. and smoke weed in the middle of the day and uh, wail on my pecs. Roll music. Wail on my pecs. He'd absolute, it's an absolute regression to his youth, and he even tells you that that's kind of his plan when he buys a pot from Ricky and he's, you know, he said, oh, gosh, when I was your age, I flipped summers, burgers all summer just to be able to buy an 8-track. And, he, and then he, he's, you know, Ricky says, that sucks. And he's like, no, it was awesome. So what does he do? He gets a job flipping burgers. I want the least amount of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody probably has that fantasy at one point, you know, as a working person with a full-time job where you're like, God, I would love a job where I have zero responsibility because it weighs on you. Mm-hmm. And he does it. And you're, I, you know, when I watched it, I was like, I'm kind of jealous. You know, you... I mean, you did blackmail your boss for almost $60,000, which is pretty convenient, but you don't have any responsibility now. You just have to show up to work and flip burgers. Like that's- The problem with showing up to work to flip burgers is you can't maintain a house the way he had. You right. can't maintain you know, a, uh, uh, you know, the standard of living that you're used to. Unfortunately, you know, people work very hard at flipping burgers. I'm not knocking it, not in any way, shape, or form. But the fact of the matter is you don't make the same kind of money. Yeah, and you he probably spent don't. half of his salary – the blackmailed salary on the car. Oh, yeah. and realistically, the weed. that's got to be thirty. Yeah. I mean, be, let's be honest. I mean, two thousand dollars for a little little package of weed that seems exorbitant to me. I don't know. Uh, yeah. That that, that stuff seems better. crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just wow. I've never heard that's of that. That's quite an investment. It is an investment. Or not a lot. No, but... not a lot. But that's the thing is he's you know when you're young you're so short sighted you don't necessarily think about long term things like you do when you're an adult whereas. Those are the kinds of things that keep us from quitting our jobs is mortgages and children and the cost of living and your car payments and all that stuff. Feeding but, the cats. And, yeah, you know, I got to buy <laughs> gotta my feed, cat You got to feed the cats. My fat cats need – they're hungry. So, you know, it's those are the my things that – My girls would be real mad <laughs> if I didn't feed them. And by girls, if you don't realize it, I'm, that, those are my cats. I don't have daughters. But yeah, my cats are my daughters. That makes Surrounded sense. Surrounded by cat people. And that's, that's why we're awesome. 
That's why you hang out with us. Is that what it is? Well, you also have a very fat, sweet beagle. No, hound. Basset hound. Basset hound, yeah. So we're all animal people here. Yeah. yeah. Nope. We should all have a bring your pet to the studio night. Yeah, that'd be a bad <laughs> plan. Maybe I'll ask Zach. That would be a bad plan. I'd like to it see would what would happen such to a this soundboard yeah, with well, four sets of pods. I cannot. I cannot. No. Yeah, so he does buy a remote-controlled car. Yeah, and yeah. then runs it into his <laughs> wife, which is not the sort then, of thing that a forty-five-year-old. One of my one of my favorite lines then was, uh, "Yep, I bought that Trans Am. I rule." Yeah, <laughs> then he just throws his fist in the air, and right after that, he makes a concerted, honest attempt to seduce his wife. Yep, yep. Lester, yeah. you're about to spear beer, beer on the couch. And That's it's a $3, so true. Couch. This is a $4,000 sofa upholstered in Italian silk. This is not just a couch. It's a perfect place to do what he wanted to do. We might not all know a kind of person from the characters in this movie, but we've all seen these sort of characteristics in somebody. Oh, yeah. And I and feel ourselves. like the relatability. Oh, yeah. Like, that's why, you know, he says a lot of things that are not warranted and not accurate in my mind, but that conversation. When he, the whole, it's just a couch. You know, we're talking about ultra realism, and yeah, he's 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 absolutely right. It's he's he's trying to make a connection with his wife again. Mm-hmm. And what does she do? She pushes him away through puts her language wall up and again. puts the wall up again by by caring more about an Italian silk covered couch than than a real moment they were about to have after all of the crap that they've been going through emotionally. And and, and at that point, I, if I was him, I would have been like, you know what? Forget it. I'm gonna gone. Go, going to go I'm cruise up and gone. in my muscle car. Yeah, yeah, I would have been like, you lady. know what? Fine. I'm done. What about the creepy dude with the the, the king realtor or whatever? What's Buddy up king? with his eyebrows? Peter Gall- oh, Peter I'm Gallagher. I'm so glad you brought up his Peter Gallagher's eye- eyebrows. His eyebrows were outrageous. I, that's Peter Gallagher's face, man. I don't know. I would like to give a special award to whoever it is that maintains Peter Gallagher's eyebrows because they are... It's they actually, are maintained. I would I would think they would have to be a small crew. I'm thinking I three th- different people. Like all day long. Like yeah. With a crane. Hedge they, trimmers. Something yeah. is going on and, you with know, that They have one. I mean, <laughs> good God. Everything that he's in, they are like They're out of control. I think I they're a little just, exaggerated in this one, too. No, I mean, I know they're crazy in, in real life. Stage, but, which I just uh, outed myself for have seen, having seen Center Stage Whatever, I've seen Center Stage. But I've seen it enough times to like remark on Peter Gallagher's eyebrows in that movie. But And he was also in the see which i never watched mm-hmm. but his eyebrows are extreme in shape and whoever it is that works on his eyebrows I think they deserve they did. an award i'm looking they'll... at i'm looking at a picture they did overdo him just a little bit for this film but well I that's mean, a more recent headshot too that's granted, been retouched. but i'm just saying i'm just saying they they really i think they he got some caterpillars up there <laughs> yeah he that. he drew like and he's got the ultimate power brow he, he oh, drew yeah. the <laughs> I don't know if you want to say the lottery or maybe he got the short end of the stick, depending on your perspective, but he's got some intense eyebrows, man. Looks well, perfect yeah, on a, a bench. Wow, he looks, on a, he's on a Print on a bench. Yeah. <laughs> or a sign in the yard and, as a real estate king. I was just absolutely stunned that when they flash to the scene when they're in she or he and uh, Carolyn are in the uh, in the, the hotel room. Yeah. And <laughs> Her legs are her up legs there. Are just, they might as well have been behind her head at that point. I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> what the heck? I I mean, what do we see? Well, it's been a long time. I, I think guess. she's that repressed. That, uh... I guess. 
I like what he. I don't know if you're gonna say this on air, but I love what he says when they're in that scene. You like getting nailed by the king? <laughs> yeah, you can say that. That's I don't fair. Know. That's fair but game. But it's so funny because it it's a good example of this, like the the kind of person that he is. Mm-hmm. He's so about himself. You like getting nailed by the king? And she's like, Oh yeah. I like getting so the royal funny. treatment. Yeah. yeah. Wink, wink. Nudge, oh, nudge. God. Say yeah. no more. Yeah. When you when you meet his girlfriend. Oh, no, is it it's his, his wife? Because he's getting a divorce. Yeah. Oh, I just thought she said no. we split up. No, no, no. He's actually going through a, a divorce. Yeah. You know, his real estate firm is the Rolls Royce of local real estate. Firms. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great line. Yeah, that that's um, just disturbing. He's just weird. <laughs> he is weird, but I feel like I know so many people like him. You know, it, people who. I mean, real estate agents might be especially guilty of this, you know, because they are they, their primary job is to sell and being in a sales position. If you've ever been in one, whether it's food service or like a professional sales capacity, like pharmaceutical or retail or whatever, it's that's kind of how people are. You're not just selling your product. You're, you're selling, selling yourself. And Always looks successful. My, Master your emotions. You're not a human being. You're a selling machine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like that's success kind of and the idea of success are, are number one and everything else is a far second. Nothing yeah. else matters. Oh, yeah. The yeah. Vi- that's, and that's the strongest vibe I got from Carolyn, especially near the beginning where she's preparing that house, she's oh, cleaning geez. everything, and she's talking to people like, the way she's talking, I would be so terrified if I talked to a human being like that because it's so she rehearsed looks- and robotic. And it's like almost a Stepford Wives, you know, scenario. She is incredible. She's yeah. like, she looked crazy cleaning that that place up. I mean, by the way. That place was awful. Oh, yeah. yeah. What it was house. There was, there was, so, there was style. nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was nothing good about <laughs> that house. I mean, the kitchen was bad. The the lagoon style pool <laughs> was just. It's just a concrete hole. But she's so. She's such a real estate agent because when you go shopping, I remember going when we were buying a house when I was a kid, and all the real estate agents had this weird positive spin towards everything. Oh, of course. And they you would do. be literally walking into. A closet, and they were like, it's just full of positive energy. And we were like, it's a closet. Like, There's a big hole in the ceiling. Well, uh, the skylight. Yeah, skylight. Yeah, you could put it in natural light. Natural light. A breeze, you know. A I mean, simple coming in through the roof. really brighten things up. Man. That, that scene was, of hers yeah. is wonderful. And then when she does not sell the house after her. I will sell this house today. And her freak out what in the blind. What was that? Was she's punching herself? Oh, I was like, ooh, there is something Stop missing it. from Stop this it. young. Ooh, there's something. Ooh, yeah. She, and she's such a perfectionist. She's an ultra cold-hearted perfectionist for so much of that movie until, you know, her, her personal transformation kind of starts to happen. And she, you know, that's a good example of the kind of things that she holds herself to such a high standard. And. And she doesn't fulfill her her goal, and and that's her repercussion. She's a right. she's a glutton for self punishment. So she just she literally oh, beats herself self, up. Oh yeah, pretty. And insane. I thought you know in in the introduction of her with uh, with the shooting range, you, you it you know that's a huge 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 misleading thing from the very beginning because there's no way ever that she would kill her husband or anybody else on purpose. Mm-hmm. And yet she's good at that, apparently, according to the range guy. But again, she's sitting there. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And I, she thinks she's headed back to the house with the purpose of possibly shooting her husband. But there's no way. I don't 
personally think she ever could have done that. Do you think that that's what they were trying to tell you, that that's what her agenda was? She was going back to... I really think that that's what that was at the end. She was working herself up to it. She was going to confront her husband and mm-hmm. basically say, enough is enough. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. You need to uncrazy yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, that whole, like, there, there's so many scenes in the, towards, especially towards the end of the movie, where they plant this little seed of an idea. You you know that Lester is going to die within a year. He's told you already. So you have, you know, if you remember that from the beginning, you're like, and then, you know, they start to build this tension with these long shots and these, the way that they film the movie. And they give everybody a reason and they give everybody this sort of, they give you a reason to think that any one of these people could be the one responsible for his death. And, you know, Jane in the beginning, and she says, yeah, would you, you know, kill my father? Right, and right. So you, you're you like, well, well, would it be Jane and Ricky? Would they really would they really do that? And, and then and then Carolyn starts learning how to shoot, and she's good at it, and she's driving around with a gun in her purse, and she refuses to be, well, would Carolyn do it? And so you're asking yourself this, and when you see that gun come to the back of his head, you have no idea who did it. Jim and Jim. <laughs> oh, no. It was the little dog next door. <laughs> yeah. But it's, And I liked that because you don't, you know, you don't really have any idea, and and that's kind of the, he says, you. it's amazing what you do when you find out you still have the ability to surprise yourself. Well, I think Colonel Frank Fitz just surprised himself. He tried mm-hmm. to he tried to make out with him, and then it didn't go as planned. Mm-hmm. But his lie is so deeply <laughs> ingrained that rather than risk anybody ever finding out and breaking down his facade, he Yeah, he, he had him. to, you know, he, he actually acted exactly the way he had to in order to protect himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At least in his own mind. very consistent with his character. Too. Very consistent with his character. Because if you don't like who you are, you don't like what you could possibly be, and others find out who you are or what you could possibly be, you have to eliminate that. Yeah. You have to eliminate that. No weakness. No weakness whatsoever. And and I, I knew it wasn't Jane. Jane wasn't was up with Ricky. You knew it wasn't Ricky because Ricky was with Jane. You knew it wasn't, uh, 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 what was the girl's? Angela? Angela's, because Angela's in the bathroom, and where would she get a gun? Mm-hmm. I mean, she's yeah. just, she proves right then and there at the end that she's just a little girl. Mm-hmm. She's truly just a little girl. And then, you know, Carolyn's still out in the driveway, hasn't even pulled up yet. You would have, you would, would have had some indication, even though it's pouring down rain. So who else is it? You don't know until you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you knew it wasn't any of these other major players, or at least I knew. I don't know what about you guys, but I was like, this. there's no way it was his wife. It just, no. It's it, it's out of character for her to come up behind him without saying something. Oh, she would have said something. She would have had, she would have, the moment she came through the door, her mouth would have just been unhinged. Yep. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know, she's not a, an assassin. <laughs> so. <laughs> she, she, that's her problem with Lesser. She can't keep her mouth shut. She she's really so... can't keep her mouth shut. If she. <laughs> kept her mouth shut on the couch none of this would have happened possibly yeah. they would have made up right there on the italian silk and it all would have been a moot point but you can't you can't have intimate relationships on four thousand dollar sofas well i, I think you can but... you have to you have to I get would, the cheap yes, blankets you can. out you know? honey that's just <laughs> that, that definitely Hold doesn't on, kill the mood yeah, let me uh, that challenge honey let me get the sex tarp out <laughs> let me uh let me just go to the garage i'm pretty sure that's a spinal tap song yeah. Yeah. The sex sex tarp. <laughs> well no she walked through and she she saw him there and she realized that she's holding a gun you know and 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 she doesn't know how to react because she thought she came in with the, that very purpose, that very mindset that she was going to threaten him, at least shoot him if she had to. 
But when she sees him there, I mean, she freaks out, obviously, and she goes up to her she goes up to her room in the closet and puts her purse into that hamper, and then that I mean, her whole hu- her husband is now what's left in this closet. Yeah, that's a great oh that moment when she realizes that. And she looks, and she has that freak out. Yeah. That's, and she sees his clothes. You know, and he, I think that was a very honest and visceral reaction to the shut-in shock of, shock of loss. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where you look, you know, if you've ever known anybody that's died in your family, and then you see their clothes, like, that's a whole other thing you got to deal with. But, And she just, like, that's all that she's got to hold on to because mm-hmm. his brain's all over the kitchen table. Oh, jeez, yeah. Ugh. But I thought Ricky's reaction to him laying there was probably, it, well, it, it's creepy. I also thought it was the best reaction. Mm-hmm. Very true to character. Oh, very true to character because it looked – it really honestly did look like Lester was smiling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and he has that scene earlier where Ricky says that he looked at that dead homeless guy in the eyes. Right. And if yeah. you look close enough, God looks back. So, yeah, it's it's absolutely in character. I know that Premiere Magazine called this – this made its list of top 20 overrated films. Really? And when I was in high school, this was always my tester movie whenever I, like, had a girl that I was interested in. Because this movie hit me right away. The first time I saw this movie, it put me in an amazing mood. It, you know, it did wonders for my quality of life, truly, which is so weird because it's such a dark and disturbing, like, underlying content. But um, I did. I used this as well. As a tester movie in college, this if I was dating somebody, I would make them watch this movie, and their reaction— They're made for each other. Ben. I know. Hey, girl, you won't watch Hellraiser 2 or what? <laughs> oh. It truly was. It was how I—depending on their reaction, because there are some people who just—they well, didn't last very long. They just don't get it, and then they're like, well, okay, whatever, and it was like, you don't feel anything? Mm-hmm. There was no part of this movie that stuck out to you, and I made my mom watch it, and the part—like, the part that I, I feel like there's a part of this movie that speaks to different people on different levels, so— There's one scene that hits everybody specifically. Yes. And, well, my mom, you know, to me it was the end. And, you know, the progression of of Lester's life and this, you know, one of my favorite lines is, nope, I'm just a guy with nothing to lose. And that, you know, kind of was like, well, when you have nothing to lose, the possibilities are endless. And that kind of— Absolutely. And then, you know, at the end, there's that ending scene where he's talking about— life and and you know there's so much beauty in the world but my what my mom took away from it was the scene with Ricky and Jane watching the plastic bag which is right. kind of that you know that pivotal that's moment in the movie that is the the beginning of all these other story arcs and and he's talking about this entire benevolent force behind things and my mom that was what really resonated with my mom and so i was like well this is interesting because there's something everybody takes away something different from this movie or has something different to say about a character. And that is what I think, why this movie is such a, a topic of conversation in film studies classes and 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 stuff like that. Because there there's not really a unifying voice in this movie. You know, you have Alan Ball's writing, which it was going to be originally written for the stage. And then you have Sam Mendes's first directorial debut as a as a filmmaker right he'd always been a playwright before and then you can see that we were talking about you know everything looks like well, a stage sta- yeah it's staged a lot differently yeah and he's still it's still a lot all of his movies still pretty much look like that you know road to perdition revolutionary road a lot of right. his movies still have that that image of a stage of, of the theater but every and then you have all these incredible performances from especially kevin spacey and from um annette benning they and what i would say west bentley too but those three like and they just grab you, and they just take you with them the whole time. There's one thing that kind of took me out of the movie, and I texted Jimmy about this. 
five, five, five. Oh yeah, the number, the phone number. Yeah, those like yeah. every time like everybody has this thing that's in a movie and, or in a lot of movies. And if you see it, you're just like, Ugh, why are you, you doing that? Yeah, the five, five, five thing. There's no reason to show a phone number in a movie. All or you, talk you, about it. Or talk about the phone number in a movie because it does. It removes you from the reality of what's going on in the film and puts you in that mind, oh, I'm watching a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, that, I, that, and, and, not, and that, does, that wasn't a huge detractor for me necessarily, Ben, ben but I'm I'll, not saying I'll be I hated honest, the film because of it, I, I still really liked it. I did it. notice that too, and I yeah. was like, oh, they didn't need to, all they had to do was just show the name, and they didn't even have to show the, the first three numbers or whatever. He could have had that covered up or well, something. Well, when he's you know? on the phone and he's leaving a message for that guy and he's like, have him call me at 555 or whatever it was. Yeah. But I, there's something happened in like the last 10 years where you don't have to use 555 anymore. Like if somebody leaves a phone number in a movie now, they use, it sounds like a legitimate number. Right. But I think that kind of dates this movie because it didn't come bit. out in the 90s. Oh, you it's know? 1999. Yeah, 99. And, I, and I have somewhat of a confession. Today was the first time I saw this film. Oh, mm-hmm. no way. Everyone I think has a movie like that where it's like an Academy Award winner or it's supposed it to be an the... all-time great. And somebody says, oh, what do you think of this movie? Because you assume someone else, is, that person you're talking to has seen it. Oh, what I think of it is I haven't seen it. <laughs> and, and again, you know, you would think I would have somewhere along the line. But I, 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 I'm going to tell you very honestly, I think I know why I haven't seen this film. First of all, 1998 was when my son was born. In 1999, I was sleep deprived. (laughs) Beyond all measure. And at that time, things were just starting to speed up for my family, and I don't think I ever... It was never one of those movies I looked at and went, man, I've got to see that. You know? I've got to see it. And and I have another confession. I've never been a huge fan of Kevin Spacey. Wow. I'm sorry. I don't know why. I loved him in this. And and I think that if I had seen this film at any other time, it would not have meant as much to me. Mm-hmm. Again, we are essentially the same age, he and I. In, in, when this film was made, he was uh, 43. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm 43 now, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of the thoughts that he was having have gone through my head. Now, granted, my life is nowhere as miserable as his is, mm-hmm. not even by a long shot, but do you, at that point in time of your life, have those thoughts? Do you do a little, mm, oh, so we'd say, have a little inner journey every now and then and say, what should I have done? Mm-hmm. What could I have done? Mm-hmm. And, and well, yeah, the answer is absolutely. There are on, on, any number of different things that you could have done. But you have to also understand then, and this is the thing that the the utter – finality of the 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 despair it was almost that was coming through these fake ridiculous smiles that they were putting on it was like if if they had just smiled a little bigger their skeletons would have jumped out of their bodies you know especially carolyn's especially carolyn's i mean truly it was like it was like looking at walking dead people well there's there's a hellraiser reference that would have been like a chatterer from from Hellers are just like gums and teeth. Yeah, truly. That's if they had okay, smiled honey. that big. I'll be so whatever my, you want. My wife, yeah, that my wife scene. thinks that Kira Knightley smiles like that. Yeah, yeah. I like her, but it's I because like too, she's but weird looking. Yeah, I like no, her. of course, of course. She is a little alien like. She's got yeah. her own She thing only going on. seems like she fits in in period pieces. I when don't know. she was I don't in know. That Steve Carell. Oh, no, that was wonderful. Oh, that's oh, another I didn't like that at all. I thought that was wonderful. I loved it, but at the end I was like, oh, oh man. I was so like, why is this billed as a comedy? It is a comedy, all up until the past five, uh, the last five minutes where they're having the most genuine moment that two people could ever have, ever. 
and then the world ends with their little mm. doggy. Oh. Anyway. Yeah, she's also great in Bend It Like Beckham when she was like 16. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was just a kid then, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, she was just so anyway. Teen little, anyway, Back anyway. To so it kills me when people haven't seen this movie, and because of the controversy of the Angela fantasies, some people and I've seen this play out more than once. You say, "Have you seen American Beauty?" And they're like, "Oh, is that a is that the one about the dad who has a affair with his teenage daughter's friend from high school?" Like. Yeah, I can't that's what deny you. The, that's, that's what you see in the trailers, but yeah, and, and it doesn't. Part of the trailer, happen. yeah, and yeah, it doesn't happen. It's a very. It'd be like saying, "Is that the movie about the gay neighbors?" Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's a part of the movie, they but they deserve their own spinoff, probably. The Jim and Jim <laughs> yeah, movie, or like their own sitcom. So about the phone numbers, <laughs> I noticed. Macula, I, was, I was watching this a couple days ago, and I noticed that in the book, there's a couple three one two numbers, which is Chicago. There's a right. couple New York area codes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, their idea of trying to represent any town USA, if you will. Right. You know, they're making a statement on on twisted American suburbia, so they don't want to give it a city per se. So Yeah, you really don't ever know where they are. There's never mentioned. I mean, the aerial shots are San Francisco. There's another scene you can see him driving in Burbank, and obviously these locations exist. I think think at some point I think Sam Mendes said that in it. Ideally, they were in, like, a Chicago suburb. That was yeah. sort of the idea that he had was, you know, like, I don't know, just Schaumburg, Schaumburg's and, right. you know, Oak Parks of the world. That Naperville. Yeah, Naperville, the Naperville especially. Oh, geez, it's yeah. very, very Naperville-looking very. sort of place. And and it, it really does look like a Chicago suburb. It doesn't it does. necessarily look like California does. No. Which is because they did the film most of it some there. Some of the clothing they were wearing too didn't didn't scream California to no. me, unless you're talking like Northern California or something like that, but closer it didn't to even Washington. Look like San Francisco, you know, and yeah. I mean, it, it San Fran. I mean, I don't know. I guess that's the whole point. Is it's like, well, where does this movie take place? Well, the high school kids door. smoking cigarettes in and like at recess seemed kind of California. That I didn't really I don't really see that around here too much. And and the, I, two I high think I that was to. pretty. Bold too, even for ninety nine. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe if this was set in seventy nine, that would have been understandable because there would have been teachers out there smoking with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's the truth. But but in ninety nine, no, they weren't. They, no, they they wouldn't have been doing that. It right that out there in the open, unless there was such a huge campus, unless they had you know. It was a 5,000-student campus or something, and the teachers were just all harried, and they didn't have private security wandering the place. But Yeah. Uh, At least now the students can vape inside. Can I don't even really? want to go there. I don't I don't even want to go there. No. Oh, can I bring something up real quick? Scott Bakula's character. Uh, aside from uh, Scott Bakula, every time I see him— Quantum. I actually met him once. Oh, and I met him because I actually taught, and this is going to be just absolutely strange. I actually taught his daughter swimming lessons, huh. and he had a connection to Macomb, Illinois, through you know cousins or something like that. And he brought his daughter to stay with them for a while while he was filming something. And I got to meet him, and I got to teach his daughter swimming lessons. I thought that was so cool. That is cool. That is cool. That was it was just and I was just a kid at that point, you know. I mean, and she was really young too. I mean, super young, so probably five, you know. But it was it was it was kind of a neat thing, and I was like, oh, Scott Bakula, how cool! This was back in the quantum, quantum leap, leap days. Leap, it was yeah. back in the quantum leap days, yeah, or just awesome. before that. So, just before he really took off. So mm-hmm. that is cool. But it was kind of that's my little Kevin Bacon story, if you will. 
Yeah, collectively, I think me and Anna have spent just probably hours and hours and hours discussing this movie and the lighting and the ending monologue, uh, the way that they use the black and white. But it's such a sharp black and white, you know, when it shows him as a kid lying on his back, so sharp that it's almost like black and silver. It's just oh, everything. Yeah. And the, the there was an Academy Award for Best Cinematography. He won. Oh, I think it was, yeah, again, Deservedly. I think that... That, and back to what Ben mentioned earlier about the the uh, the uh, voiceover, the narration, if you will. You, you know, my those of you who have been listening for long enough know my feelings on narration, and and for the most part, I think it's just useless and should be thrown out. In this, while you can make an argument that it does kind of spoil the ending at the beginning. I think that this is not so much as a voiceover as an inner monologue or a soliloquy to the audience. As it would be done on stage. Exactly. Very stage-like, yeah. It is It is absolutely a soliloquy. It is not something that uh, – it, it is It is not unnecessary like so many voiceovers or inter-narratives are. Mm-hmm. So I think it adds – again, while I'm not a fan of that sort of thing, this definitely adds to it rather than distracts, detracts from the film. Mm-hmm. I I, th- I like the voiceovers. I think they aren't overdone, I, and they I it feels very stage like. It's basically the opening monologue to a play, but with imagery instead of an actor standing in front of you. It's so it, it really does set the tone. And I I like that he tells you, in less than a year I'll be dead because it, you know, when you go back and rewatch it, it's one of those you know it's not about the destination, it's the journey, because it really is. The, you know the the meat of the movie is. So much, you know, and then you do you do have this very moving and intense ending. But you see, you know, when you set yourself up for that, it kind of gives you an idea of, fin- you know, the finality and the mortality of all of us. And it's a, an examination of life and death in a lot of ways. You know, what what does it mean to be alive? What do you do with the time that you have here? You know, and they say one thing is true. Every day is the first day of the rest of your life. That's true of one day except for the day that you die. And that is true. So it's, you know, it's kind of a, a rude awakening in a lot of ways. If, you know, you in less than a year, you could be dead. So mm-hmm. what life are you living? And he mentions when it shows him, because the original opening, he was supposed to be flying over the neighborhood, and it was this dream sequence. Right. Oh, I'm glad and that then, and I know, me too. That's it, yeah. So it ends with him waking up, and he says, and in a way, I'm dead already. So just because you're alive doesn't mean you're living in all these sort of... It, it, the, the, whole, the whole of the entire film kind of smacked me as being one entire day. It feels like it a it little bit. It feels like one whole day. Now, I know mm. it's over a multitude of days, but it does – it just feels like one long day with the exception – I guess there is the one scene in there where he's <laughs> pleasuring himself in bed right next to his wife. <laughs> I guess there is that break in there where it's, oh, they're back in bed again. But uh, but again, it still seems to me as though it's almost a he, – he wakes up that first, that first scene. This all occurs within a very finite amount of time. And then, boom, it ends. And it ends with, with the rain. It ends with darkness. It ends with um, what some may consider a sad ending. But it actually ends, for him, on a high note. What is yeah. he looking at at the end? He's looking at the picture of his family. The, the two people who mean more to him than anybody else in the world. And he couldn't be happier. With his life at that point. Yes. If this man who just got shot in the head is still happy, then what excuse do you have? Exactly. To, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your life? Exactly. So, 
Well, and I want to talk a little bit about the sort of pedophilic relationship with Angela because it is unsettling initially because this is his friend's like 17-year-old, you know, she's a 17-year-old girl. Right. She's by no means a grown-up. And it's, you know, it's not surprising because Angela does present herself in this way that she, you know, that doesn't, it's it's not a victim thing. She, you know, but she's, she's beautiful and Lester is a a total creep and it you know you kind of laugh at him and you're like secondhand embarrassment you feel bad for jane because he is so weird you know do you do you need a ride i have a car do you need to have a car do you need a ride and it's like whoa dude <laughs> that old scene, <laughs> that old scene. Wow. he's like a, he's like a lovesick puppy but then when they have they finally have their moment and she she tells him this is my first time you see it's like an immediate switch that flips and he goes from being this you know romantically interested in her to being a father and he covers her up, and he makes her some food, and he he just stands there and watches over her and makes sure that she's okay. And you, I'm really glad that that's how that story tied up because oh, if it had yes. gone another way, then I think this movie would have been received differently. It might have, have been if it had gone those... another way, then he would have deserved being shot in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, but I he think, redeemed uh, He would have himself. earned it. I think they set that whole scenario up, including the subplot of Carolyn with the gun as a red herring because of the time, you know. You think, yep. oh, wow, he might be... <laughs> Uh, as a grown man having sex with Angela and the wife's coming home, Carolyn's coming home with the gun. So, you know, in one part of your mind, you may be thinking, well, maybe she's going to catch them in the act. And that's how, you know, he dies. But I was thinking to myself, uh, with with this movie, I really don't think that'll happen because that doesn't really jive with the rest of basically everything that's happened up to this point. Yeah, and as soon as she confesses, this is my first time, She's immediately reverts back to her actual age, Absolutely. and then Lester She's goes no back to being a, a father. And well, let me put a blanket on you, get right. you warm, and, and let me do all these fatherly things. And right, it's She's, a huge reality. She's check. no longer a, 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 something to be lusted. She's now something to well, be her, protected. Her true and, face has finally been revealed in the last five minutes of the Absolutely. movie. Absolutely, yeah. And she Something cries. Else. Well, yeah, genuinely. I mean, she's just a scared little girl at that point. And everything changes. Her voice inflection changes. The way that she talks changes. She becomes the... genuinely likable at the end. Mm-hmm. She yeah. could be a very likable human being. She Because all throughout the rest of it, she was just this naughty, well, you know what Entitled. I'm saying. Saucy little minx. Yeah, that's right. A saucy little minx. <laughs> saucy Jack. Or saucy, so saucy, saucy, saucy little minx. Saucy Angela. Yes. Saucy Jack. If you want to hear the rest of this episode, you can visit movieshowtheater.com and hear the rest of our American Beauty discussion. Otherwise, we're at the hour, and so we're going to have to wrap up. And this is us wrapping up. This, we're wrapping it up. Yeah. We're so wrapping it up. We wrapped it. Wait, Movie Show Theater is three words, and there's four of us. How are we going to do our cute little catchy Movie ending? Movie show. You could, you could split theater into two as well. Not really. Well, thanks for listening. You can hear all of the rest of our episodes at MovieshowTheater.com. You can find us on the Movie Show Theater Facebook page or on the 90.7 WAZU Facebook page. Leave us a comment. Leave us a movie suggestion. If we're doing something wrong, let us know. We all take criticism well except for Ben. <laughs> you took criticism of Death Proof pretty well, didn't you? No. <laughs> no, I didn't. All right, continuing. Continuing. Uh, so until then, I'm Jimmy Malone. I'm Anna Holguin. I'm Stuart Randolph. And I'm Ben Snowden. And this is Moo. The Show. Theater? Theater?